Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Jeff Way, CEO of Southbank Corporation and non-executive director with the Port of Brisbane. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jeff Way. I'd never met him before conducting this interview, but he's got a great sense of humour and he's certainly got a very interesting career and some strong views on leadership, which I think you'll get some great value from listening to. Before we get into that conversation, let me quickly introduce myself to you. My name is Richard Triggs. I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. We recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. And we also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy services. So if you're a senior executive or non-executive director looking for your next career opportunity, feel free to reach out and I can have a chat to you about how we can assist you in finding your next role. Let me introduce to you now, Jeff Way. Jeff Way is the CEO of Southbank Corporation and a board member of the Port of Brisbane. He has a Bachelor of Economics and a Master's in Economics from the University of Queensland. He's also very recently completed the Company Directors course with the Australian Institute of Company Directors. He's married and has two daughters who are both early in their careers, one as a commerce graduate and one with honours in environmental management. Jeff also enjoys being a mentor for the UQ Business School, which he finds a great way to stay connected to new ways of thinking and to help new postgraduates find their way into their careers. He describes himself as a tennis tragic and also enjoys painting in acrylics. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Jeff White. Well, Jeff, uh, welcome to the Arate podcast. It's lovely to have you on. And as we look out the window on this beautiful summer's day in Brisbane at South Bank, as I said to you, uh, I'm very envious of the people here who are enjoying their uh, holidays and they're dressed in T-shirts and here we are sitting in a suit. It doesn't seem very fair. <laughs> uh, hi, Richard. Look, just running South Bank is an absolute privilege because uh, it's one of the great assets of Brisbane and southeast Queensland. It's the biggest tourist attraction in Brisbane, and I get a I get free advice from about three million people in, about how to run it. I'm so sure it's always it's always uh, entertaining. Lots of stakeholders. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, great. Yeah. Well, look, uh, Jeff, just to begin with, uh, for the people who are listening in, listening in, could you just uh, have a talk about your current range of professional responsibilities? Um, I'm the chief executive of South Bank Corporation, so the corporation owns the Brisbane. Convention and Entertainment Centre. It owns all the ground floor property in the Parklands and Little Stanley Street and Gray Streets. So we are a property management and leasing company. Mm-hmm. Uh, these days, the, the the grass and the water of the the pool are all managed by the Brisbane City Council and okay. current arrangements. Uh, we are very proudly watching the development of the three towers of South Point mm-hmm. be developed at the top of Gray Street. And in my other role, I'm a, a non-executive director of the Port of Brisbane, which I enjoy enormously because sure. that's one of the great engines of growth for Queensland. Great. And that's a fairly recent appointment. 
That's a year ago. I was right. appointed to that board. Yes. Okay. Uh, well, fantastic. Well, we'll come back and talk a, a bit more about that later. Um, so I, I'm sure most people who are listening in um, would be, at least if they're from Brisbane, well aware of uh, what South Bank is. Um, and certainly, I think with the G20 last year, it brought a, uh, the um, precinct to the world's attention. So I, I'm very excited about talking about uh, all of that and no doubt the challenges and uh, rewards that came from hosting that. Uh, but just to begin with, Jeff, perhaps um, take us back to where it all began. Um, we we're always interested in, you know, where you grew up and what your early life was like, mum and dad, family and your schooling before you got into your career. Richard, I was born and raised in Baden okay. in, in Brisbane. I'm a Brisbane boy all my life. Uh, I went to Milton State School as a little whippersnapper. Right. Uh, went on to Brisbane State High School, which I class as one of the great pieces of good fortune I had in my early life. Mm -hmm. my, I only got to go there because both of my parents uh, were students at the school. Uh -huh. So I was a second generation uh, kid there. My brother and I went there. Uh, and so it was a great GPS school. Sure. I, it, it changed my view profoundly about mm -hmm. life and competition and aspiration and a whole lot of things. My dad was a milkman. Okay. And some of my earliest memories are around Spring Hill and Red Hill where we had a milk run delivering milk at two and three in the morning. And, right. Uh, uh, the, uh, the capers of people in those suburbs at that time, at that time of day, are the subject of a forthcoming <laughs> novel. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> Watching people do the walk of shame. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. And so, so uh, your sort of early work was hanging off the back of a milk truck, uh, dropping off and picking up empty bottles. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Okay. From the age of about five or six, I used to go out and deliver milk with my father. Okay. My father had a very bad back. Right. And so as soon as we could lift a crate of milk, my brother mm -hmm. and I were uh, recruited to help. Okay. Because it was the family business. Right. So you delivered the milk or you didn't eat. So okay. Very compelling concept. Sure. And your brother was older or younger? Two and a half years older. Okay, right. Yeah. And what about mum? What did she do? Uh, mum was uh, at a store in Hale Street at Petrie Terrace. Okay. So if you drive down Hale Street towards uh, Suncorp Stadium, yep. on the left there's an architectural shop on the left-hand side of Regent Street. That used to be the mixed business my mum ran. Okay, right. And so you would get uh, uh, a little bag of, a little white bag of lollies if right. you'd had a good day at school and okay. uh, a pretty stern talking to if you hadn't. Fair enough. And so uh, each in their own way quite entrepreneurial. Uh, I imagine uh, that would have been an interesting dynamic to grow up in that kind of family. Was there a lot of talk about, you know, owning your own business and, and business in general? There was. I mean, my dad came home from the war. He was in uh, Papua New Guinea in the Second World War. And he got home and had to earn a living. Right. And so he he started initially driving trams and felt that that wasn't going to you know, sustain us in the way we wanted to. So he bought a milk run and then he bought a second milk run. Okay. And he certainly taught me the power of hard work. Sure. Uh, and, you know, looking after customers was just... Uh, an extraordinary passion because if you didn't deliver the milk, mm -hmm. it's a very fundamental thing. If you didn't deliver the milk, the money wasn't on the step the next night. Yep, yep. So it's a very, you know, compelling discipline to say the people get the their what they're paying for on time to quality, and it stayed with me. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just you work hard and you make your own luck. Mm -hmm. So 
we also had some interesting times there because people uh, would try and rob us of uh, the milk money. Okay. Uh, we'd come back to the, the van and he'd be some uh, hooligan kind of trying to take all the money. And my dad was a blue belt in judo, which right. was always, you know, uh, a good sort of uh, security thing for sure. us. Sure. But yeah, it was it was a very memorable part of my life. Right, a bit of a trial by fire. Yes, right, totally. Okay, and uh, just out of interest, uh, your brother uh, went to high school with you. Yes. And uh, where's he ended up in his career? He's a financial advisor. Okay. So he did a master's degree at uh, university. Right. In f uh, financial advisory, uh, so he's got a, a good practice in mm -hmm. the western suburbs. Uh, helping people get rich. Okay, fair enough. I need to probably uh, take a leaf <laughs> out of that book. And so, uh, Jeff, uh, you did your high schooling, um, and then what happened from there? I went to Queensland University, mm -hmm. um, part-time because I was employed by British Petroleum, of all people. Okay. And they had a commercial cadetship, which right. was, again, one of the very fortunate things that happened to me that they, they had a three-year program that they'd pay for your university, give you time off to go to lectures, and they would also move you through the company so that you'd spend some time in accounts payable, some time in marketing, some time in service stations, some time uh, emptying rail cars and tankers and so forth. Right. And understanding, <coughs> excuse me, understanding the fuel business top to bottom. Sure. So I got a very, at the age of 17, 18, 19, mm -hmm. I got a very good introduction to the way an entire business operates. And what uh, uh, inspired you to join that business? Were you particularly interested in that industry or was it just a great job to have while you were uh, a young guy uh, completing your qualifications? Well, I, uh, there were plenty of jobs around, but okay. they had a, such a progressive view of looking after young people who wanted to study and, and mm -hmm. move forward. And if my parents had, uh, in particular, they'd said, look, the, they weren't well educated. Both of my parents left school at the end of grade 10. Mm -hmm. And they, they knew that an education was going to be critical in the, the era that I would grow up in. Mm -hmm. And they were so right. And so when British Petroleum had these uh, cadetships going, my father certainly encouraged me. I needed very little encouragement because it was a pathway forward to you know, get an undergraduate degree. Yeah, and so Bachelor of Economics, uh, what uh, excited you about that particular qualification? Well, um, with hindsight, I would probably have done commerce. Right. But I, I enjoyed the, on the one hand and on the other hand of economics. Um, I, I don't mind a debate every now and again, Richard, so I kind of, it, it suited me to that extent. Along the way, I did quite a bit. I did a double major in mm -hmm. commerce, mm -hmm. uh, which was also pretty helpful. Mm -hmm. And I guess in my final year, I got the university prize in economics, which mm. not only surprised my professors, but surprised me. Sure. So uh, it was at that time that they said, uh, would you like to do postgraduate? Mm -hmm. And I think it was for the first time in my life at that point, that I'd realised I had more brains than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And then, uh, and then, so what happened from there? I did a master's in economics for the next two years. Yeah. And then, when I finished the thesis, I packed up and went overseas for three years. As okay. Many Australians did it right. in those days, and uh, travelled around Europe and lived in London working mm -hmm. for Music Company of America. Okay. And uh, I spent some time as a fisherman in Iceland. Right. 
and some time on a kibbutz in Israel. Right. So I did a, a great number of things, but it was a time when I could come back to Australia and there was plenty of jobs for right. people with masters in economics. Sure. And yeah. then was that at that point that you joined Cameron McNamara? That's right. Right. Okay. So I came back to Australia. Uh, Cameron McNamara, were, they went and talked to my professor and uh -huh. said, have you got any uh, decent young people who right. are looking for a job? And he very kindly suggested me and as they say the rest is history. Uh-huh and were you uh, a bit of a long-haired hippie when you were traveling around uh, working in a music uh, business and then uh, all these other things? I uh, imagine you had a pretty eclectic view on the world. Well let's say I look a little different these days Richard. <laughs> I, I, I had a fairly red beard. Right. Um, glasses straight out, sunglasses straight out of Hawaii 5 All oh, right. And curly blonde hair. Okay, yes. right. Uh, but by the time I started at Cameron McNamara, I was pretty straight-laced. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. Okay, and you've never looked back. That's right. Right, and so Cameron, Cameron, Cameron McNamara for about three or four years. Correct. Working actually as an economist. Yes. And then uh, from there moving into the tourism industry. Yeah. One of my clients in Cameron McNamara was the Queensland Tourism Travel Corporation. And that was uh, chaired by Sir Frank Moore mm -hmm. in those days. And he was the father of not only Queensland tourism, but Australian tourism as it would unfold. And he approached me one day and said, look, we want somebody to come and uh, look after the research for the industry, mm -hmm. but also they wanted to build five resorts. Okay. Uh, not personally build them as the tourism corporation, but the land was deeded to the corporation from the lands department mm -hmm. and we were asked to do joint ventures with uh, private sector to have resort developments mm -hmm. built. Uh, the first one was with Christopher Scase. Okay. Uh, so that was quite a, that was quite a uh, first step sure. to do that. And I negotiated the uh, development agreement for the Sheraton Mirage Port Douglas. Mm -hmm. I think I was still in my just in my 30s when I did that. Right. So a terrific experience as a young guy to be exposed to Christopher Skates. Absolutely. And and the result was a $200 million resort. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty fun. Sure. And from there? I, uh, I left and actually went into business with Sir Frank for 10 years after that. Mm -hmm. uh, Sir Frank and I uh, started a, an advisory business which turned into a hotel management business and we built up over that 10 years uh, a suite of hotels that ran from Alice Springs to Cairns, Rockhampton, Toowoomba, Brisbane uh, and we ended up building it up and selling it to Accor in, in 2000. Okay. So that was, that was a, also a good thing. Right. And so you were doing that whilst at the same time having your executive roles? Uh, no, no, no. I'd finished at Queensland Tourism Travel Corporation. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. No, I'd left. Okay. So whilst you were uh, following this entrepreneurial pathway of developing resorts, you were doing other work too in terms of the tourism industry in the Northern Territory. Oh, the, yes. The, the, uh, the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory approached Jim Kennedy, who's right. a pretty well-known businessman around town, and he had been Deputy Chairman of Queensland Tourism Travel Corporation. Okay. Um, he, was in, he was asked by Marshall Perrin to do a review of the Northern Territory Tourist Commission. 
Mm -hmm. Jim rang me and said, I'm happy to do it if you're happy to come along with me. Right. Uh, which I very eagerly did because I had a huge respect for Jim mm -hmm. Kennedy. And we went to the Territory and found a few interesting um, things out, most of which can't be made public. But it was clear that there were going to be very substantial changes needed for the way in which the, uh, the Territory Tourist Commission operated mm -hmm. and the structure it had. Jim and I went to see the Chief Minister on a Friday afternoon, presented the report, and uh, the, the Chief Minister said, look, who are we going to get to run the Tourist Commission? And Jim said, oh, why don't you get Jeff? Right. Uh, Jim was on a plane back to Brisbane that night because he had a horse racing the next day at right. Doombin, and I stayed on and ran and restructured the commission. Right. So what I'm interested in is, uh, I mean, at that point, you're still quite early in your career. Yes. You're juggling lots of balls. Each one of those balls in itself would have been more than a full-time job, I imagine, and yeah. required uh, a high degree of uh, competency and emotional intelligence to circumnavigate through all of that. What do you think were some of the qualities that you um, either possessed naturally or developed within yourself to enable you to be able to do all of those things uh, at the same time? Yeah, Richard, that's a, that's a good question. The, the thing that I've always had to do, because I tend to take on a lot. Right. right. And even today, I do a lot. Sure. But you need a team around you that you implicitly trust, mm -hmm. that they totally understand the plan. Mm -hmm. And so they're making decisions within an environment of knowing how I think, not just what I think. Mm -hmm. And so if they have a, an issue, they know how to deal with it most of the time. Mm -hmm. So take the example of the Territory. I had to let a few executives go. So I had to uh, get a few replacement executives very, very quickly. Um, I needed a, a top marketing person because the marketing was appalling. Mm -hmm. I rang up an old friend of mine, John Garnsey, and, and uh, John was the head of Garnsey Clemager, who mm -hmm. were the best, in my view, the best ad agency nationally. And John was just pulling into a into he was on a cruise ship just pulling into Southampton when I rang him. Okay. And he, I said, I'd like you to come to Darwin tomorrow if that's not out of your way. And so his wife, probably ten years later, forgave me. Right. But he got on an aircraft and flew to Darwin the next day. Mm -hmm. um, and he managed the creative process for me for what was then. Uh, to become Daryl Summers and the If You Never Never Go, All right. You Never Never Know campaign, yeah. which even today, you know, uh, plays with my heartstrings right. because it remains one of the most successful, uh, and I mean successful in not just people liking it, but successful in causing people to go to the territory. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's probably among the things that I would rank highest as my achievements. Okay. So there was John Garnsey and myself and a mm. couple of other execs that I pulled together to run the commission and I basically circumnavigated Australia every week, mm -hmm. uh, would leave Sunday night for Alice or Darwin from home, uh, kissed Heather goodbye and would see her Friday night when I came back from Sydney or Melbourne. Right. And we ran the hotel business as well right. while we did that. Sure. So um, yes, it was a busy life but in both in both arenas, I mm -hmm. had people that I, I implicitly trusted. Mm -hmm. um, and you can't be a dictatorial person. Mm -hmm. You've got to give people 
the proper briefing, engage them, bring them into inside the tent, have them exposed to the plan, and then they will and allow them allow mm -hmm. them to succeed. Sure. And so uh, obviously one uh, critical element of your leadership style is to uh, to bring teams together who are highly competent. But uh, as a, a young guy, you did a Bachelor of Economics, so you had a, a grounding in, um, you know, the theory of business, I suppose. But what were some of the... Uh, the ways that you developed your leadership style or some of the mentors that you uh, uh, um, leaned on to help to round you out? Because obviously success is more than just getting good people around you. Um, look, I think culture and people will kill strategy any day. Okay. Um, you can get strategy a little wrong, but mm -hmm. you can never get people and mm -hmm. culture a little wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it was my father, you know, I don't want to sound that, I don't want that to sound hackneyed or anything, but he said the ability to get on with people is one of the greatest skills in life. Mm -hmm. And if you can inspire people, if you can educate people, if you can bring them on board to, and make them as inspired as you are, you will, you will succeed or you've got to change that person. Mm -hmm. So great people are, inspired they're not you know you've got to bring them to up to your space to your speed to your level of thought i think there's a uh, there's a uh, i guess in in decades gone past people tended to be bosses they've got to be leaders mm -hmm. and leaders actually uh inspire people allow them to have people around them that are actually brighter mm -hmm. and even today there are a lot of CEOs and senior people who actually are intimidated by having people in their team who mm -hmm. are brighter than them. And I think that's a, that's a fundamental error. I, I'm always proud of the fact that the people around me, uh, thank goodness, are brighter than me. Sure. Well, I think, it, again, it's one of those cliches that often gets uh, a lot of lip service. But when you actually start to dig underneath a little bit, um, people uh, will say, I want to get people around me who are better than I am. But then you actually look at reality and there doesn't often seem to be much evidence of that in terms of the truth of their business. Uh, Richard, I think that's true, you know, mm -hmm. but, but senior people probably average three to five years in a particular mm -hmm. role. If that's true, then right from the first day, you've got to be uh, finding sure. and schooling and working who your replacement's mm -hmm. going to be because you've got to look at your career as a lifelong investment. You don't want people saying, well, you know, you, you know what, you left that company in very bad shape because after you left, there was such a gulf mm -hmm. or there was a gulf because you were there. Mm -hmm. Both things are critically important. So I just think that uh, I, I've always been very comfortable and proud to say, you know, the team uh, is, has a higher IQ than me. Fantastic. Sure. Well, that's great. We'll uh, come uh, to some more of that discussion a little later because I'm uh, quite interested in your views about, uh, you know, average tenure of CEOs and, and so on. Uh, I just want to come back to, so you had your hotel and resort business. Yes. Uh, you decided <laughs> to exit that in, in 2000. What led to that decision? Look, I, the, the hotel business, in our view, was going to go through a pretty rough patch mm -hmm. um, because post the Olympic Games, I felt that there might be a hangover from 
that event right. that so many people had visited Australia, mm -hmm. so many people had travelled interstate for the games as well, that we didn't have a bright outlook. Um, and we got a fantastic offer. Mm -hmm. Right, fair enough. <laughs> and I'm not sure that I got those things in the right order there, Richard. Right. <laughs> but we got a very good offer from Accor. Um, we had been a thorn in their side mm -hmm. for years, mm -hmm. in particularly Mount Isa and uh, Alice Springs. Right. And we had we shared the number one and two positions in the three-and-a-half to four-star category in those centres. And finally, they came to see us and said, all right, will you just sell your business? Right. We're sick of, we're sick of you know, the you know, uh, competing this hard against us. And uh, so they bought the business. Good on you. And so what uh, you uh, exited there, and then you had a little break, I think, uh, uh, before starting your role with IMED. Yeah. I just had a couple of uh, motels and in Longreach for that time. Okay. Because there were two properties that we had under management that, for some reason, Accor didn't want. Right. And so the, there were the two best motels in Longreach. So right. I, um, I had those for a while and uh, and then sold them separately, uh, mainly because I couldn't convince my wife to move from uh, Brisbane to Longreach. Uh -huh. So I was commuting. Um, she was uh, she was brought up in the bush, so right. she she didn't like to travel too far west of. Uh, Ipswich, okay. let alone Long Range. So she'd escaped to the big smoke and wasn't keen to go back. Exactly. Right. Exactly. It's interesting. Uh, I've interviewed quite a number of uh, uh, female directors and CEOs for uh, this podcast. And often um, people who come from the country feel a really strong calling back, uh, but not in your instance. Uh, in my personal instance, I love the bush. Right. Absolutely love the bush. Yeah. Um, I When I was with Queensland Tourist and Travel, I... I had regional development as mm -hmm. part of my portfolio. Okay. And there was nothing better I liked than to go to uh, Charters Towers or Longreach or yep. Mount Isa. Um, you know, I just, and I still love going back there. It's just that I tend to have to go alone. Sure. <laughs> so, but yeah, um, my wife, you know, doesn't, you know, enjoy going to the bush. She likes a, a few more coffee shops, I guess. Fair enough. And so, uh, obviously, from um, your background, quite a radical departure to then move into this new phase of your career with IMED. What sort of led to that? Well, yeah, that was a surprise to me as well. But I, I was uh, tapped on the shoulder mm -hmm. by uh, a recruiter that uh, I'd known for, you know, as a tennis player okay. for many years. And he rang me up and he said, what are you doing? And he said, I saw that you sold your hotel business. I said, well, I've got the motels out at Longreach. He said, how would you... Would you come to Sydney with me next week? Because they, there's a company there that's got an aggressive kind of idea to amalgamate all these uh, medical imaging businesses and uh, take it onto an IPO, mm -hmm. and they're looking for a, a CEO for Queensland. I okay. said, mate, I know nothing about right. medical imaging. He said, oh, we'll get over that. Right. Um, and so I was pretty apprehensive, and uh, I think... I think IMED was apprehensive, mm -hmm. um, but they were looking for somebody who, you know, really cared about culture and mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. and transformation because the doctor's practices were very much riddled with odd work practices. They, were, they had favourites in terms of pay rates and people who'd been there all these years. They had terrible equipment uh, because they were running them down for a sale and mm -hmm. all this sort of stuff. And they said, 
Well, we think you'd be perfect for it. Okay. Because of the culture and the transformational experience I'd had. So I said, okay, all right. Um, so I said, look, I'd like to do a six month contract mm -hmm. um, and let's review it after that. Mm -hmm. So they said, okay. So at the end of the six months, I was, I was uh, very much involved in the process of the re-equipment and all of that sort mm -hmm. of stuff. We were negotiating an EBA that was, uh, had some incentives in it for staff, which they'd never had across the board. We'd put training and development and you know, career aspiration as part of their day-to-day uh, -day, uh, narrative, um, and I was enjoying it. Mm -hmm. And so I signed on for another three and a half years uh, to see it through the IPO. Um, and we all did well from the IPO. Right. And uh, then after the, the listing, a private equity group from the States came and bought it, which then uh, I moved on. Right. But it was, a, it was a fun thing. Sure. And uh, just, I'm, uh, uh, just to segue a little bit in terms of uh, it's a really good example of where by having a relationship with that executive recruiter, um, they were able to look at you in terms of your key achievements and transferable skills in order to promote you into an opportunity. Whereas if that role had been in the open market and you'd been an applicant, you probably you may not have even had consideration because your background is so vastly removed from that. And I think uh, you made the comment to me earlier, um, none of your roles have come from uh, being an applicant in a sort of a traditional uh, uh, respond to an ad kind of way. Um, and so maybe just talk a little bit about that and uh, uh, how were you able to uh, convince this organization that you know there's a risk associated with appointing me i come from a hospitality hotel background um uh talking about your uh your achievements and how they could be uh, utilized within this quite uh different environment yeah you've hit on probably one of the most significant things about my career mm -hmm. Richard, because you're absolutely right so this day, I have not applied for a job anywhere other than British Petroleum right. way back. Um, and I, I, I feel very privileged that that's been the case. Um, the, the recruiter did a pretty good job of introducing me before I walked through the door mm -hmm. and had conditioned them to, the, to be talking about uh, my attitude to people, culture and transition. Um, and I can still remember being in that Sydney... Uh, uh, restaurant and them saying, well, give us an example of how you changed your environment. Mm -hmm. And the story I told them was that when I was in Longridge, uh, one of the things that people in the bush don't talk about is youth suicide. Okay. And, you, and the, the loss of young men to suicide mm -hmm. in the bush is a huge issue. Sure. And I wondered for some time as to how somebody in the accommodation business could do something. Mm -hmm. The guy I was in partnership with in that uh, was, I think one of the, Lance Smith is his name, if you need you know, a highly creative bloke, right. Lance, Lance Smith. And Lance said, why don't we set up a surf lifesaving club in Long Range? Right. right. I, we'd had a couple of red wines that night, so <laughs> I, I, I thought I'd check with him again in the morning as right. to, that's what he said. And he said, look, if you want to bridge the gap between country kids and coastal kids, mm -hmm. then let's see if we can put a, uh, a surf lifesaving club and get a couple of surf boats yeah. and train 
crews on the Thompson River. Right. Which for most of the time is a giant lagoon, not yep. a river. Yeah. And I thought he was crackers, to right. be honest. But next time we were in Brisbane, we went to see the CEO of Surf Life Saving right. Queensland. Yeah. And he said, not only is that a great idea, we've got the boats. Right. So we got, I think we paid $5,000 each for two boats. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then, uh, I don't know, a thousand or two to get them out to Longridge by rail. And then we had the boats. And so we then recruited a male and a female crew, because right. some of the girls have got pretty, you know, yep. some of the Jillaroos are pretty handy sure. with it all. Yeah. And so we, we started competing against each other in mm -hmm. the Thompson and then we enrolled and took the boats to the coast. The whole ethos was to build friendships mm -hmm. between country kids and uh, coastal kids mm -hmm. and it worked. Great. And it worked. And they said, well, anybody who can do that right. uh, is the sort of cultural change merchant that yep. we're looking for. Yep. And I said, it wasn't my idea. He said, mm -hmm. no, but you executed. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's an interesting thing because I'm, I, like you, would say, what in my background mm. uh, from hotels and hospitality and so forth mm -hmm. and aviation would qualify you mm -hmm. to buy a new MRI machine or sure. an X-ray machine? Yep. Uh, was there any way of tracking the result of that initiative in terms of suicide prevention? Um, I had, look, to be honest, uh, I don't know of that. Right. Um, I don't know of that. But what I do know is that, as you know, surf clubs have uh, plenty of bunk beds sure. in them so that the kids can come and yep. stay. I do know that a lot of kids started to go to Mackay right. and Gold Coast and so forth because okay. they had a new friends sure. set. Yep. So if we save one, Richard, mm. if we save one kid... Oh, without a doubt. Um, I'd sure. be eternally happy mm -hmm. about that. Oh, that's excellent. And for people who are listening, you know, I think this is so valuable because a lot of people are concerned, well, I don't really have any relevant experience that I can talk about to convince this company they should hire me. Yet here's a story which uh, was perfect in terms of um, creating a level of trust that you could do the job, and yet is quite a left field sort of... Uh, uh, representation of your skill set. So yeah. I think that that's something, uh, you know, uh, to really think about. Um, and that was a, a great piece of uh, ad hoc advice. <laughs> okay, and so um, uh, with uh, IMED, and then it seems uh, back into a family business again. Yeah. Right. After I left IMED, and I, I'd agreed to stay the four years with IMED, and the IPO was over and um, all of that. And for the first time in my life, I actually just did what an MBA textbook would tell you to do, and that is to look at the global trends right. and, and do the proper research as to what you think is the next important thing that you might want to be involved in. And at the time, the drought was starting to bite, and uh, I went and saw Campbell Newman, who mm -hmm. was then Mayor of Brisbane, right. Lord Mayor of Brisbane, and I saw some other councillors, and they told me... Um, they confirmed what I had researched, and that was that a lot of capital cities, but particularly Brisbane, was facing a severe water crisis. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said to him, how bad do you think this could get? And he said, I think it's not certain, but one possible outcome is that Brisbane could run out of water. Right. 
And that was probably the most alarming thing anybody had said, because sure. what on earth do you do? I mean, there aren't enough trucks to truck water mm -hmm. in that situation. Mm -hmm. And the dams only had to get to about 8% and you'd be sucking blue-green algae. Mm -hmm. It wasn't at that point at that time, but it was under 35%. Mm -hmm. And so I decided soon after that to go into the tank manufacturing business because the policy makers at, uh, count, uh, at local, state and federal levels were starting to talk about rebates for water tanks. So the only drawback was that I knew nothing about making them. Mm -hmm. And so I, I finally, to cut a long story short, found a guy who had been the chief tank maker mm -hmm. for Nilex. And he was making canoes and Telstra boxes, you know, the underground yes. bits, yeah. um, out at Acacia Ridge. And I went out there, walked through the door and said, Chris, I'm Jeff. Um, and we sat down and had a cup of tea together. Um, and we decided that uh, we should have a look at mm -hmm. how we might do this. Um, again, it was one of the very fortunate things in my life. Not only did he know how to make tanks, mm -hmm. he knew how to make the machines right. that made the tanks. Okay. So we ended up with an entry price uh, way below our competitors. Mm -hmm. um, we had no debt because I'd contributed the equity to it. Um, and we were making tanks inside eight weeks. And the bigger manufacturers like Nilex and Co were placing orders for machines out of Germany mm -hmm. and North America, and we were building them faster than they could import mm -hmm. them. They didn't look as cute. They didn't have as many, you know, shiny knobs on them. Right. But we didn't turn them off for six years. Right. So once we got going, um, the drought really started to hit. The rebates came in, mm -hmm. and basically people could buy a fully installed rainwater tank with pumps and so forth for nothing. Right. So um, I was very, very uh, excited by this and we went 24-7 mm -hmm. within about seven months of setting up. Okay. And we didn't, literally, we, we serviced those machines while they uh, operated and uh, didn't turn them off for years. Uh-huh. So it was, a, and then of course it went and rained. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it did. A lot. It, it rained quite a bit after that, and uh, the, so there was a very sudden right. end, end to the boom. Sure. The rebates disappeared, and uh, but we were in the happy situation. We were uh, one of the last to leave uh -huh. because we had no debt. Yeah. We owned our factory. We owned all our equipment, mm -hmm. and we had the time to then find our angel in business, uh, another expat Australian right. who wanted to manufacture uh, rainwater tanks up in Papua New Guinea. Okay. So we did a deal with him to uh, transfer all our gear up there and do a turnkey, uh, setting up the factory, training the staff, right. making the moulds, do everything and hand over the keys. Uh-huh. And then off to South Bank. Yeah, well, I, I, I was at the airport coming home from Ley in Papua New Guinea and mm -hmm. somebody rang me and said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I've just gotten off the plane from Papua New Guinea and I explained where I was at and they said, well, we'd like you to come and we need a CEO for South Bank. Right. And that's how it happened. And was that a recruiter or...? A that was uh, somebody senior in uh, Premier's department. Yeah. And uh, they said, look, uh, come in. There's a there's a formal process sure. to go through, yeah. Um, 
And so I met with uh, premiers, I met with state development, I met with the chairman of the board, mm -hmm. who was Steve Wilson in those days, mm -hmm. the stockbroker. Uh, I'd known Steve for some years yeah. and he was very on board with my joining. Mm -hmm. So he said, but there's no rubber stamp here, Jeffrey. Mm -hmm. I want you to introduce yourself to the full board, which, sure. I, which I then did. And they recommended me unanimously to join Southbank. And Richard, I knew nothing about asset management, property leasing or anything else. It's mm -hmm. another one of those. And so I also wasn't used to having three million people you know, give me advice on how to run. Yeah, yeah. So there was a massive stakeholder mm -hmm. issue about running South Bank mm -hmm. as well. So that's how it happened. Mm. And I imagine that must have been a fiercely contested role in terms of the profile uh, of South Bank and uh, to be awarded that opportunity is obviously a testament to your key achievements from your career leading up to that point yeah. and uh, it seems now coming into South Bank when I read about the kind of things that have been achieved uh, since you've been here a lot of it is quite property centric isn't it it is it yeah. is we are basically a, a property manager asset manager leasing mm -hmm. company um, but you know there was some there were some pretty significant improvements we've been able to make we've been able to also get uh, South Point $600 million three-tower project going, mm -hmm. which, you know, I'm intensely proud of and, and our partner in that is one of Queensland's, you know, great property developers, Anthony mm -hmm. John Group. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, I have only praise for those guys. They are so professional. They deal with such good quality. Mm. Uh, if that sounds like a free advertisement for sure. the Anthony John Group, so be it. Well, he's always had a reputation as being a... Uh, a consummate architect of quality. Uh, you look at Emporium and, and uh, uh, so I can understand you saying that. So you come into a role like this and you know what's the mandate? Jeff, welcome to the role. What we'd like you to achieve for us is X. Um, when I first took the role on, uh, it, the, the, the mandate was to wind it up. Right. Um, and uh, Part two was to get South Point going. Okay. So South Point, uh, getting that done was uh, took about a year, mm -hmm. um, and we got it over the line and under construction. Um, then I realised that actually winding it up wasn't the thing that I thought was a good idea. Okay. The reason is that there was a a will to wind it up, but not enough uh, consideration had been given to what to do with the assets. Right. And so. I could have wound the place up inside a month uh -huh. if, that, if somebody had actually wanted that. But what do you do with the assets? Yeah. Um, and so I raised that discussion, and then we were my chairman and I were appointed to do a review mm -hmm. of what to do with the assets. Mm -hmm. um, and they also asked us to look at the assets of stadiums, Queensland, this, the Gold Coast and Cairns convention centres. Um, and QPAC. Okay. So there's about three billion of assets we uh, did a review of. Yes. And Michael Hawkins, who is a well-known guy around town, was also the third member of the review. Right. We reported to government and uh, they didn't uh, have time to act on it before they lost government. Okay. And so I've now delivered my views to the new government mm -hmm. and we're waiting to see what they'd like to do. Sure. And in the meantime, uh, I note from your uh, CV that um, you know uh, one of your key achievements is reducing this massive debt uh, to to zero. Yes. Uh, which in itself, uh, you know, is a great outcome. 
Oh, look, that was a pretty proud day. Sure. Um, uh, South Bank had had up to 90 million in debt. Right. Um, and I paid off the last 30 million. Okay. Which was a good feeling. Uh, uh, the under treasurer uh, did tip his hat to me the next time he saw me, which right. was nice. Um, and it is, look, it, it was a milestone day mm -hmm. because it was, it was also saying that we'd gotten the corporation to a, a profitable track where it needed no public mm -hmm. funding support mm -hmm. and was cashed up and ready to do some new stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, it was a, it was a memorable day. And I note uh, your uh, achievements include some quite interesting and disparate things. Uh, uh, your digital and social media strategy. I imagine that must have required you to have a whole heap of uh, new learning uh, personally <laughs> in terms of how to. Uh, to navigate through what is a, a very different way of doing business. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, when I came here, it was, uh, Southbank had a traditional marketing budget in that it had so many dollars to print advertising and so much to billboard and so much to this and that. And it was all traditional mediums. Mm -hmm. And the world was changing very quickly and, and still is. And it seemed to me that we really needed to build a platform in social media. Um, I had had some exposure to that in the tank business. Mm -hmm. um, and if I might uh, just go back to that, sure. um, it was becoming very evident that we were uh, not uh, using digital as a, as a means of, or even a web, we had no website mm -hmm. uh, for the tank business. So we soon got one and we actually enabled it to transact. Okay. And we marketed that, and I would get to the office of the morning and have sold 10 to 15 tanks. Right. And you go, how long has this been going Yeah, on? sure. So when I got here, there was no evidence of saying, we understand that uh, paradigm. Mm -hmm. So I introduced it. So I wanna, I wanna get a, uh, a website we're not going to make it a transactional website because we actually don't own the restaurants, mm -hmm. but we can direct bookings. Yeah. And so today we take about 1,200 bookings for our restaurants ourselves. Okay. And so we have built an engaging website mm -hmm. and now delivering um, to our tenants mm -hmm. um, and we've, uh, we've been able to reduce what we spend on billboards and you know, more conventional means. Now it seems pretty obvious that it was a good thing to do. Right. You know, very few people um, use as much traditional media as mm -hmm. they used to. So, okay. Yeah. It's been a very interesting learning curve. Absolutely. And uh, I, I'm interested you uh, drew on your tank manufacturing experience to uh, stimulate that initiative. But mm. when you're looking at a, you know, such a complex um, uh, business like Southbank, what are the ways that you draw inspiration for thinking about new strategic uh, initiatives? Are you doing any kind of formal professional development or uh, are you doing any uh, travel or research or where do you get your ideas from as to how to take the business even further forward? Um, one of my hobbies is that I'm a little bit of a tech freak. Right. Um, and I, I, I recently went to a, uh, a 3D printing okay. workshop because I wanted to know more about it. Sure. Um, and uh, I've also got a, a strong interest in the way the automotive industries are changing and um, 
the uh, the way that say an Uber model is started is moving towards driverless electric cars. Yes. Now that sort of thing is just an in, uh, abiding sort of passion of mine to understand those mm -hmm. things. So I had to I had to learn search engine optimization, right. Richard, and I know that you're an expert on SEO. <laughs> uh, Only but, in the context of LinkedIn, but that's I'll, right. I'll take the compliment. <laughs> <laughs> but SEO was something that I had to get uh, uh -huh. familiar with. Uh, I did as part of the tank business and I got a, uh, with all these things you've got to, even though you're kind of middle-aged, you've got to have a lot of contact with young people who mm -hmm. grow up with this. And I'm very fortunate that I've got two daughters in their early 20s now, yes. but they have grown up with social media and mm -hmm. they think I am, you know, some sort of dinosaur. Right. Um, but you need to stay in touch with young people mm -hmm. because if you lose sight of people and say, look, even though the people who pay to come to the restaurants might be generally, you know, 35 to 50. Yeah. The people whose ideas will cause them to come to your restaurants are in their 20s. Right. And so I think that I've always enjoyed the company of, you know, bright young professionals mm -hmm. who start to change the world. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I mean, I find it very stimulating. Um, it's one of the reasons I'm a mentor for UQ mm -hmm. because it's an opportunity to keep getting reintroduced to the people who are going to be running the show in probably under 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so I've always enjoyed those relationships with mm -hmm. you know young people and mm. the, the ideas bubbling up. Mm. And what I find interesting about that, uh, I do a fair bit of mentoring as well, is that there's this view out there that Gen Ys are all lazy and you know they uh, um, think the world owes them a living and so on. But when you actually start to get exposed to these people, I mean they're incredibly smart and hardworking and really not much different to. Uh, uh, you know, people of my generation and no doubt people of your generation in that there are, um, there's clear evidence that they want to do great work and be well rewarded and make a difference to the world. So I think they get a bit of a bad rap in generally, uh, in general out there in the media. Yeah, Richard, I think that's very true. And in, and in fact, in a lot of ways, they're better. And thank God they're going to be better. Mm. Um, I, you know, you see that they don't believe in a boarded world. Mm -hmm. They actually grew up our kids have grown up in a borderless world. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a daughter in Rio de Janeiro studying, at the moment studying uh, the relationship between uh, climate change and soil quality. Right. Now, that is a job that didn't exist five years ago. Sure. And here she is at the age of just to, had a 21st birthday in Rio de Janeiro. Okay. And sh th this is her passion. Right. And you think, my God, you know, what a fantastic opportunity. As she's going to come back and, and that's an explosive feel mm -hmm. and that's what I love about the fresh borderless thinking mm -hmm. of good young people mm -hmm. and I'm fascinated to hear a bit of the uh, the backstory for G20 uh, so talk to me about how that kind of unfolded and some of the opportunities and the, the drama associated with that of which I'm sure there was a lot <laughs> I, I, I reckon probably two-thirds of my grey hair was G20. Right. It was a huge opportunity for Brisbane to mm -hmm. be on a world stage. And for those people who have any doubts about that, I can only say that the, the world sees Brisbane differently mm -hmm. and it sees our convention centre as one that can host 
uh, security conscious mm. events, and mm -hmm. there are plenty of them. So we've been able to reposition the convention centre accordingly. Mm -hmm. That if you have a need for high levels of security for the things you want to do, mm -hmm. we are an excellent choice. Um, so it's opened a new market for us, and that's just in the convention centre. The lead up, I think, was the longest few months of my life mm -hmm. because the lockdown was for a 30-day period. And my concern, uh, it used to be a very private concern, it's not so now, but my concern was what happened in the 30 days before the lockdown. Right. Where some crazy might come along and even just blow up a rubbish tip. Sure. It would have sent tremors of fear through the community. Mm -hmm. So quietly we had security walking around in plain clothes to make sure to the best of our ability that that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm sitting here still in the job yeah. to say it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. I think if it had, I wouldn't be sitting here, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, look, it was, it was a very sophisticated uh, effort by the Australian government, the Queensland government, mm -hmm. by the Convention Centre, by ourselves. It was a lockstep uh, endeavour. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody had the same outcome. Yes, there were some things that had to be negotiated, you know, about the rental agreement on the yes. convention centre, but they paled into insignificance mm -hmm. now. The whole job was to put Brisbane on a world stage, mm -hmm. and by golly, it happened. It was fantastic. And one of the one of the testaments to that is that on night two, um, the British Prime Minister and his entourage actually walked from the convention centre to one of our restaurants for dinner. He felt so secure and right. safe. Now, David Cameron does not go for walks. Sure. You know, in the moonlight to right. a restaurant. Uh, that was probably the great tribute paid mm -hmm. um, by world leaders mm. after, or during G20. They felt so safe and rightly so. Mm -hmm. I must admit, because I live in Brisbane and was here at the time, that uh, it was, I mean, I don't use this word, uh, in a negative way, but it was um, completely underwhelming in terms of the whole security element. We had this sort of anticipation and driving through the city with uh, um, armed police and so on. And then really from a security point of view, it was an absolute non-event, wasn't it? It uh, was, it was. Uh, which was amazing. It was. Mm. Um, look, I, I think there were a lot of good things about the way the security worked. Uh, a lot of it was understated, mm -hmm. uh, which is good. It wasn't. Uh, confrontational um, so we were encouraging people to still come and have dinner I mm -hmm. just for the demonstration effect I had dinner here in Little Stanley Street on the Saturday night right um, there weren't thousands with me sure but the security was such that I, I felt very comfortable mm -hmm. there was absolutely no reason for us not to do it mm -hmm. um, and frankly that's the outcome that you know people in Brisbane and Queensland should expect mm -hmm. Looking uh, forward now, you've done your AICD course and uh, you've joined the board of Port of Brisbane. Yes. Uh, you mentioned that you're really enjoying that. What's some of the things that you most enjoy about that? Well, look, I've had an interest in large infrastructure for a long time. Mm -hmm. If you go right back to my economics days, okay. I won the University Prize in Transport Economics. Right. So I've had a, a bit of an interest through my career in that. Mm -hmm. And so when the when I was approached to go on that board, I was thrilled because I, I guess I have an infrastructure uh, background here at Southbank, but this is a scale above that. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but it was a pretty hectic year because uh, I'd only been on the board about two months and we went into a, a bidding campaign for the Port of Darwin. Okay. And so that kept us enormously busy for the months after that. So at a time when I was trying to come up to speed on the Port of Brisbane, I was also coming up to speed on the Port of Darwin at the right. same time. Yep. Um, so, and there's a whole bidding process and advisors on live cattle exports or security mm -hmm. or how often the US Navy might come to Darwin. And it was an absolutely intensive period of work, mm -hmm. um, but thoroughly enjoyable. I mean, intellectually stimulating mm -hmm. um, and, you know, something I've always wanted to be involved in. Mm -hmm. And is your appetite in the future to move towards more of a portfolio career uh, or do you still enjoy having a full-time uh, CEO slash executive role? I still enjoy being a, a CEO. Mm -hmm. uh, my board here at South Bank take a very progressive view mm -hmm. uh, that they think I will be a better CEO for South Bank mm -hmm. and stay longer yeah. if I've got other interests. Yeah. Now, they're, they're not wrong in that. I mean, in the sense that the Port of Brisbane is a world best practice port company. Mm -hmm. And it is a seriously well-run, well-structured, uh, best risk management I've seen in any company. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is transferable, mm -hmm. but I think it's better to be out, outside looking at the horizon mm -hmm. than inside kind of looking at your whiteboard, sure. so to speak. Yep. Um, and I, I just think uh, I, I admire the board for having taken that, uh, that view mm -hmm. because after a year they agree that they made the right decision. Mm. And I think it's been fantastic. Mm. fantastic. And you uh, you mentioned earlier talking about CEO tenure and so on. And you said, look, three to four years in a role. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you've been here now for coming up on four years. Uh, how do you uh, remain fresh and excited about remaining in this role uh, and continuing to challenge yourself? Well, I challenge myself internally in the organisation. We've got uh, projects that we're looking to develop. Mm -hmm. uh, the cafe precincts in the parklands have got to be rebuilt. They're 25 years old. Yep. And look it. Yep. Um, so they're two big projects and uh, we're waiting just to get underway with those. Um, my mission with those is to make them a step out 20 years into the future mm -hmm. in terms of what uh, Queensland, lushly Queensland retailing might be about. Um, and if I get my way, which I always enjoy, right. um, that will be an absolute statement, a new sure. statement for South Bank. Um, we've got these two projects going at the end of the street, the mm -hmm. South Point project with Tony John. Um, so they, I've got plenty of stimulation uh, to go. Uh, we've got a refurbishment planned for the convention centre mm -hmm. um, and we're working on that at the moment. That should, you know, that's, that should go to the board in the next few months as to what we'd like to do. There's been a lot of development in other capital cities. Uh, Sydney's just spent 960 million on its new convention center. Mm -hmm. Melbourne spent 400 million, Adelaide 200 million. We've got a lot more competition. We sure. need to keep it fresh. Mm -hmm. So there's no shortage of stimulation there. But I also enjoy the, the Port of Brisbane. I yep. mean, um, to have to consider the relationship between road, rail uh, and sea in terms of moving goods around Australia, in terms of driving economic uh, well-being, 
for the state of Queensland and Brisbane particularly, it's a great opportunity. It's a privilege to be on that board and to participate. Mm -hmm. The other great thing about Port of Brisbane is that it's got 1,800 hectares of land. That's right. And it is, a lot of the future is about its property strategy. Um, and I, I know a little bit about that area having sure. been here. So yep. that's also, you know, one thing that you know, keeps me very stimulated. Okay, that's great. So one of the purposes of this uh, podcast is to allow people who are listening, who aspire to perhaps being a CEO or a non-executive director in the future, uh, to learn from those who have walked the path before them. I mean, you've answered to some degree this question in terms of uh, your own success, bringing great people around you and ensuring that they're empowered to do great work. Yeah. But if you were to um, capture your philosophy around leadership uh, in terms of some advice that you'd offer to those people earlier in their career, what are some of the, uh, the key things that you'd want them to pay attention to? These days, there is absolutely no substitute for a great education. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't go to university and if you don't do postgraduate, it is very, very hard to accelerate your career. Mm -hmm. Intensely hard. Um, I kind of gave this message to both of my daughters and uh, it, it ranks among the few things they've listened to. All right. <laughs> so um, they, they have taken this on board, but so firstly, you need a very, very good education. Don't take your education lightly. Mm -hmm. If it's worth doing, it's worth getting sevens. Mm -hmm. it's get the high distinctions. Yep. Look for the university prize being offered right. for this subject or that subject because it'll, it'll set your resume apart from everybody else. That way you can still get a great job even after you've lived on a kibbutz for a year. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's, that's precisely the point, right. Richard. Yeah, that's so true. But then you see a lot of young people either, uh, they, they, they tend to think that the job is over then, that the world then owes them something right. because they've studied commerce law or yep. they've, they've studied environmental science and what, what is owed? Well, zip is owed to those people. What you need to do is never lose sight of your people skills. Mm -hmm. you, if you want to run a good organisation, you've got to lead by the way you behave yourself. Mm -hmm. What always amazes me is, you know, uh, CEOs who get into strife for doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. It's usually a reflection of the fact that they have no idea of culture of people. Mm -hmm. Because if you have that idea of culture of people, you know that you've got to be an exemplar mm -hmm. of what you want the organisation to be. Mm -hmm. So you, you are available, accessible, inspiring. You talk to people about where they might go in the organisation and you tell them what it'll take to get there. Mm -hmm. But, and so then they have a choice. And what I love, I mean, I always love this side of it. People are either the very best or the very worst of a CEO's day. And you've got to take personal responsibility about the good and the bad. Mm -hmm. You can't take credit for the good and say, oh, but the bad was somebody else's, sure, right? Yeah. You've got to take ownership and say, what error did I make that that person was in the organisation because that person's unhappy and I'm unhappy? Mm -hmm. So how did that happen? Mm -hmm. um, because if you've got somebody who is not adoptive of the culture, it's the bad apple in the case. You know, it, you are as strong as your weakest link, all those sorts of mm -hmm. things. But if you've got a highly motivated, keen, um, 
goal-orientated organisation. It is as powerful as Orgadel. Mm -hmm. And that's why it'll beat strategy every day. If you then add strategy to that, and you get your strategy mostly right, and you've got a great culture, you can't help but have a good company. Mm. Well, I think that's some great advice. And uh, the other thing I like to ask is, you know, you're, we've talked a lot about business and about your achievements from a professional point of view. So uh, when you're not at work uh, or going and doing courses in uh, 3D printing, uh, <laughs> what are the kind of things that you like to get up to? Uh, well, um, I'm a very, you know, proud husband and father of uh, three girls in my life. Right. And uh, I paint. Uh, I do. Uh, I'm a. I wouldn't call a budding artist. I'm right. a struggling artist. Uh -huh. And I play a lot of uh, uh, tennis. Right. And so has art been there the whole time, or is that a more a later uh, hobby? It's been there about fifteen years. Right. Richard. Okay. Yeah. Uh huh. You'd think I'd be able to have an exhibition by now, but not so. Oh, and what's your uh, <laughs> uh, your preferred subject matter? Uh, I I still like portraits. Right. I just think portraits are powerful. Okay. Emotive works. Uh -huh. I'm not I'm not a landscape painter at all, because it doesn't. You you can express so much through somebody's face. Yeah. And uh, will we expect to see you uh, in the Archibald Prize uh, category <laughs> anytime soon? Look, I go to the Archibald uh, in Sydney most years. Right. Um, and sit at the feet of the masters. Right. Uh, I regret to say that not a lot rubs off, but I enjoy it. Right. I have a friend of mine in Brisbane, Paul Fairweather, who uh, runs TEDx Brisbane. Do you know him? Yes. I and uh, he was an Archibald finalist. Yeah. And uh, I think more a surprise to him than anyone else, but uh, a fantastic achievement. Oh, that's yeah. excellent. Well, look, um, I really, really appreciate your time. I know you're busy, and uh, so we're going to wrap it up in just a moment. But just before we finish, is there any final things that you'd like to uh, discuss that perhaps I haven't asked you about that you'd like to use this as an opportunity to uh, get out there in the public domain? Look, I, I, anybody who hasn't been to South Bank lately, please come and have <laughs> dinner with us. All right. Um, and uh, uh, I, no, I, Richard, I think it's been an entertaining chat with you. Um, you're a person who's kind of uh, takes a different tack in the way you uh, run your business, which is how I got to meet you. Yeah. Um, and uh, a thoroughly engaging fellow. So. I really enjoyed our chat. Excellent. And uh, thank you for the opportunity. All right, lovely. Well, uh, have a great afternoon. You too. Thank you. Well, I trust you enjoyed that conversation with Jeff, learning about his career and his views on leadership and culture. I found it fascinating. I look forward to inviting you along for future Arato podcasts. And in the meantime, have a fantastic day.